Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Now everyone, I'm Dr. Doolittle, in case you don't know by now. Once again, I'm in the studio alone in the era of, well, not so much quarantine, but coronavirus. Panel Beater's in the next studio, controlling all the machines. I can sort of see him, I can wave to him. We're going to do our best. Um, between the two of us, we've got a series of interviews this morning, all on the telephone, so we're hoping that they'll work smoothly. We've, uh, first up, we've got Spock coming on in a minute to give us the latest update on COVID and the latest outbreaks and what it all means. I'm also going to ask him about that Essendon football player. Um, that really fascinated me about his positive test and what that meant and you know, what it meant for the rest of the team and whether a positive test means you're still infective. Anyway, we'll find out about that. We've also got our special guest, Professor Kelsey Hegarty. She's from hey, Melbourne so University, and she's done why, just published some research on family violence. She's a, Kelsey's a legend in uh, Melbourne around family violence and the uh, various responses around the hospital. My own hospital, Peter Mack, uh, um, got lots of um, advice and support from her a few years ago when we introduced our family violence strategy. So I'm really looking forward to having a chat with Kelsey. And then finally on the show, we've got Cyber Sue. She's been looking at an article in The Conversation and a couple of other bits of pieces of information about drug use and alcohol during the era of COVID and what's been happening. Now, while we're on the topic of COVID, where are we at COVID-wise? Well, I just had a look at the figures. I've just got the little computer open next to me. Globally, of course, cases continue to rise. And uh, we've had our highest daily amounts uh, in the last few weeks, continuing thousands of cases per day. We've passed the 9 million mark worldwide. Now, just to give you a sense of where that, what that means, that's 0.15% of the population. So a tiny amount, thousands of the population. Remember, the Spanish flu affected 30%. The worldwide death rate right now is at 5.4%, which is, you know, roughly ballpark similar to the Spanish flu in its time back in 1919. It's fair to say that on these numbers, it would appear that we're still very, very early in the sort of pathway of this infection, this pandemic, it would seem, unless something happens like a vaccine or something else. Australia, on the other hand, is doing bloody well, obviously. We've uh, got about 7,000... We've had 7,595 cases in Australia, 104 deaths, and uh, our death rate's at 1.3%, incredibly low compared to the worldwide figures. Since my last show, which was about four weeks ago, we've had just 450 new cases, we've had one extra death, and the death rate's fallen 0.1% to to the 0.3, it was at 1.4. And we've got about 600 active cases now, of which only 12 are in hospital in the whole of Australia, and as far as I can tell from the figures, only one in ICU. That's about down by about 80% of where we were at a month ago, and a month ago we were doing great. So we're doing bloody great. Um, The daily cases, though, are roughly the same, which, of course, we expect this virus is going to filter through. The big issue, of course, for us in the last week or so has been most of the cases have been in Victoria. So there's been 30-odd cases a day, the majority of which have been in Victoria. Still, I think about half or just under half have been uh, overseas travellers. So, you know, they don't really count. So, you know, 15 cases out of um, a day, uh, roughly out of about 6 million people in Victoria is obviously tinchy. 
Um, and uh, our total in Victoria is about 200-odd cases, 204, I think I calculated, which is about 1 in 30,000. We've got a few areas that are called hotspots, although I think hotspots is a bit an extreme word. Um, Hume, 29 people out of a population of 170,000. And one of them is Moreland, where we are right now, the Triple R. We've got 17 people in this suburb out of a population of about 160,000. Obviously, our restrictions have continued to be reduced. Gyms opened in the last week or so. I've been... Once, <laughs> once in the last week or so. That's not bad. That's all right. And uh, but some of the uh, some of the opening up of the lockdown got held back. So we've still just got five people indoors, ten people outdoors. We're being told not to go out unless you need to, essentially. Um, and uh, so uh, you know, it's it's a bit tricky. Um, there's uh, lots of promise on a vaccine, but nothing concrete yet. Um, I suppose, and a few advances in treatments. We've got dexamethasone, which we might also ask Spock about, and. If of course, it's fair to say that public health is currently working a treat. Hey, because uh, my micro- my headphones aren't working right now, I'm just going to shout out to Kent to, after this little intro, can we do an announcement? I'll just get it lined up and then I'll uh, get my earphones working and then come back so that I can chat to people because otherwise I won't be able to hear them. So where are we at as a community? I guess it's fair to say from an emotional or sort of general psychology of the community perspective, the overwhelming thing that I think everyone's noticed has been complacency in the last week or two. And of course, that's the complacency has been blamed for the little, you know, tinchy mini spike in Victorians' cases. It's not quite clear why we've got all this complacency. Some of the things I hear people saying is we've got a false sense of having beaten the virus when in actual fact it's all we've done is flatten the curve and the pandemic's still ahead of us. Lockdown fatigue, I've been told. You know, a lot of people are just fed up and you know, and uh, just can't be have a sense that they can't be bothered anymore. I don't really buy that. For me, it was more about old habits dying hard. You know, after we came out of lockdown and we got used to all of these changes in the last three months, we went back to sort of you know what for most of us is somewhere between twenty and fifty years of behaviour. So you know, it wasn't going to you know once we got back to seeing people, it was hard to remember not to shake hands and give a hug as he pauses for a cup of tea. Of course, the other thing has been there's been is the uh, lots of other world issues have taken our attention, like obviously Black Lives Matters. Other important issues have um, taken some of the um, airspace from our attention. So uh, I guess, like I keep asking every month, whilst we're in this sort of COVID phase, you know, what are we scared of the most at the moment? The virus, the economic depression. Of course, there's been more bad news on the ec- economy. The Big Brother-like controls on our movements, which you know, as you probably remember, bother me a little bit. Um, you know, I've got a little bit perturbed at the mention of the army being called in to help in Victoria this week, although initially they said they wanted 850, but then it turned out they just wanted 200 to help with testing, so no big deal. And of course, the international strife, war, the blame game. Anyway, my overall impression is obviously that we're doing incredibly well. <laughs> Public health's working beautifully in Australia. Our cases are minuscule in comparison. I buy that everyone's concerned about the little um, you know, up, upsurge that we've had in Victoria, but for my money, that's just par for the course in a pandemic and it's a real test of public health. Can public health knock those on the head and bring us back down to normal? A couple of weeks will tell us. That's what that's what we're expecting. Anyway, uh, I think we'll get this show on the road. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hey, so uh, Spock, how are you, man? I'm um, good, thanks, dude. Little, how are you? Good. Where are you right now? Where have I caught you? Yeah, I'm at home, just uh, still in my pajamas. Still in your PJs. Nice one. Yeah. 
Hey, uh, so look, you know, the thing I was just talking about in the intro before we started running into our, um, our uh, Mariner, the similar um, technical issues we had in the last show, I was just talking about the uh, mini blip in Victoria and how we've gone up a bit in numbers and how it's a great test of our public health, but my sense is our public health's working beautifully. What's your sense? Yeah. Where do you think we're at? Yeah, look, I, I think so too. I mean, the testing has ramped up. The uh, public health response is is, uh, is robust. There, there. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the, the public health response is picking up all the contacts as best they can. I mean, the, the, the concern is the, some of the asymptomatic cases and where they've got it, and they're they're busily trying to to investigate some of those cases at the moment. But uh, the app hasn't actually picked up cases that the public health people have. So. Public health folks are doing a fantastic job and, um, you know, they're going out, there's lots more testing being done in Victoria and uh, as a result, they're finding cases and they're, you know, trying to find the contacts. And I think the response is, is great. And, I, and I, I think that there's been a lot of concern, obviously, and it's a, a lot of people saying, oh, well, this big overreaction to, you know, um, just a few cases. But they're just trying to make sure that every, all the ducks in a row before they do uh, lighten restrictions, I think. And the, the concern, I suppose, is these, uh, you know, the few, the handful, really, of cases where we don't exactly know. Um, that they're asymptomatic. They've obviously been walking around with COVID and, and, uh, and we don't know exactly who they've been in contact with yet. And they need to sort of make sure they... Uh, work out how to to deal with those cases before lifting restrictions. I sort of had the sense too that the um, the reaction from the government as much reflected our observed complacency as it did the numbers. The actual numbers were small, and, and in in my mind, you know, I couldn't see why they were so worried about the numbers, but I could easily see why they were worried about complacency. I walked down the street and yeah. I saw people saying, oh, hi, I haven't seen you for a while, and hugging, and, and they not often look awkward as they realise, whoops, not meant to hug, and I heard about it at parties. A number of my friends told me examples. The one person told me, you know, someone passed around a, a joint at a party, and, uh, you know, so there was complacency in the air, and I think everyone noticed it, and I had a sense that the government was really concerned too, and we're getting lots of reports about that, and you know, lots of the media around how we need to, you know, smarten ourselves up as, as, as much reflected the complacency as it did the numbers. I agree, and I think that uh, um, I'm sure that they're looking uh, very carefully at what's happening overseas in countries like you know the UK, um, and there's a photo in the paper this morning of uh, a whole lot of people uh, on a beach because the weather's getting good there and, and they're about to go into the summer holidays and the, the case numbers are still uh, going through the roof and the public just aren't taking it seriously and I guess they're concerned that you know people have done really well in Australia have been following the messaging but as restrictions have lifted everyone as you say is becoming you know not everyone but there's increasing complacency and they're concerned that if they really take the foot off the pedal that uh, we, we may have a big, huge spike in cases. So, you know, public health messaging is so difficult. They've really got to try and, you know, give consistent messages, not be seen to be exaggerating things, but at the same time taking it seriously and trying to dampen down any, uh, you know, there, some people are still hysterical about it and are not going outside, whereas others are sort of acting as if there's nothing going on. So trying to find the middle ground is pretty difficult. One thing I just want to ask you about, that you just mentioned in passing, you said they hadn't found many people with the app yet. So how's the, do we know, I heard the app was up to the 40% of telephone users that they were going for. Yeah. So do we, do we have any early results on how useful the app is? Because I've still got it furiously turned on. It gives me a message every morning. Yes. No, so there is apparently 6 million people have downloaded the app. And what I was saying was that the app has not detected any cases that public health 
folks haven't. It's been hasn't picked them up any more quickly than the public health people have so right. far, and the contact tracing they're doing has been effective. So it wasn't actually to denigrate the app, but to say that public the public health you know they put on extra people in every state yeah. victoria certainly got many more people and they're doing they're doing all the contact tracing and doing a great job and uh, as a matter of fact the app hasn't added anything to that as 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 it stands i guess that's not surprising i heard we had 1300 people now in the health department in the, i don't know if that's true that's what i heard in the contact tracing hey tell us about the assessment footballer because that was that, that was an interesting lesson in testing and infectivity so he tested positive um it was essendon were pretty much shut down what happened next so he, he actually had his, his very first test was what's called an equivocal test, so it was a bit uncertain whether it looked like there was a, um, it was very weakly positive. And the, what the, you know, the testing that we're doing, I think most people know this, it's testing not for the virus itself, it's a bit complicated, but the RNA of the virus. So it's the sort of molecular footprint of the virus like it's been there. And the thing about the RNA of, of any germ is, or you know, anything, is that that hangs around... For a, can hang around for a long time, some, in case, some cases forever. In the case of this virus, it can hang around for quite a while. And with the RNA there, it doesn't mean that it's a live, living, infectious virus. It just means that it's been there at some stage. So that is one of the, you know, that's one of the issues about the test. So when it's so someone testing tests, positive doesn't mean you're infective at that correct. particular point so, in time, necessarily. Yeah. It may, but no. it it's not necessarily. Exactly right. And in the case, the footballer, I think what it illustrates is he had, a, had an equivocal test, he had a positive test, and he's turned out three negative tests. He subsequently also had a blood test. Now, the blood test isn't widely available, but that there, is, there, there are a few blood tests around, and there's not one that's being used for every, you know, all of And once there is one that's really reliable and widely available, that'll be a game changer. But because that tests whether you have been infected at any point, and uh, and then you know whether even if you had no symptoms, you might have had it and you didn't even realise. But for him, what happened was that he he's had the test blood test and that was positive. So that means he certainly has had the virus. But probably, um, and this is just probable, but probably that that positive test he's, um, that he had relates to. Uh, with the subsequent negative ones, it relates to an infection a little while before, perhaps when he was in Ireland. And he has, there's been a bit of that RNA of the virus hanging around still, uh, but it was from a while before because he's had so many negative tests in a period, but, and the blood test is already positive, and that takes a while to become positive, that he probably had it a little an while ago. Infection. So the chances are he's got some old dead virus hanging around in his lung or something, and then he trains, has a cough, old dead virus that's not infective, comes up, makes the test positive because it's in his throat, but he's no longer got active COVID. Exactly right. So this, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this is one. Of, the, the tests can be falsely negative because they don't get enough, you know, a good enough sample, but false positives are very unusual so it's almost if it's positive there's been virus there but it doesn't mean that it's live virus it doesn't mean that it's infectious and i guess the proof is in the fact that you know the other rest of the players have all been tested and there's one who um who was in close contact with him who himself is negative and everyone else is negative so no one's got it from him even though they're all training together and so on so Almost certainly, he was in. Came back from Ireland. Was in quarantine. He he obeyed that quarantine. He didn't spread it around, and uh, all the criticism that he got was unfounded. So, do you think Essendon deserved to win last night as a consequence? And yeah, well, you know, lost by two points. Can I rub it in? Because for people who <laughs> don't point, know, it was a shocker. I should tell people, Spock, as well as being an infectious diseases um, paediatrician, is also an Essendon supporter. 
Yes, uh, I'm afraid to say that I am, and it was a bit of a disappointing loss last night. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on this morning. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, our next guest is Professor Kelsey Hegarty. Kelsey Hegarty is an academic general practitioner who holds the Joint Chair in Family Violence Prevention at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Women's Hospital. She co-chairs the Melbourne Research Alliance to End Violence Against Women. Kelsey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good morning. So nice to have you on there. I'm just trying to remember, have we had you in Triple R before? No, no, we haven't. No, I haven't been on it, so this is exciting. I am excited because I get confused because I know we've met before. We met over a cup of coffee, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, when Peter Mack was bringing in their family violence policy and you were giving us amazing advice about, uh, you know, how we can train hospital staff to uh, recognise and deal with family violence better. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. Now, um... I guess the best place to begin is, is probably, you know, before we move on to the research that you just published, which is, you know, around training people better, where are we up to from this sort of pandemic COVID lockdown perspective and family violence, given that we were really concerned early in the pandemic and there was lots of warnings coming out. We did a number on this show as well as other places talking about the potential for uh, an increase in family violence, given people were locked together and it was a stressful situation. Where are we at? Well, it's really hard to tell because, of course, it's difficult to do the research as well to reach people. So we definitely know that access to services may be a bit tricky, but, of course, with everybody moving to telehealth, you know, it may be possible for people. But, of course, part of abuse tactics are to control people's use of phones, are to control where they go, are to try and use the COVID pandemic to uh, suggest to people, you know, particularly women, that they can't go out or that even even sometimes uh, the perpetrators, the men who are using the violence and abuse, have pretended they've got COVID to keep the woman at home. So the scope of that um, is hard to judge when those sorts of women we probably can't reach with research even. Wow. So tell us about the latest research. You've just published a paper. Yeah, so what we did is we took all the voices of survivors to tell us what they want from health professionals, um, as well as we took all the voices of health professionals and asked them what makes them ready to do the work. So I'll talk about the readiness to do the work. So, So no one's done this before. They've always asked, what are all the barriers and, you know, we know they haven't got enough time and they haven't been trained. But we were looking in the interviews and focus groups from around the world what makes them ready to do the work. What, what, what are the ones who are the early adopters, the ones who are doing it well? And what we found were there were five factors and we called it the catch model. Yep. So the first, you want me to go on? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking notes like a medical student in a lecture. <laughs> Sorry. So I literally have my pen and paper here and I've got one to five written down and catch already. <laughs> well, well, that's what I suddenly thought. I think I'm sounding like a lecturer. So. No, but it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good lecturing. It's not bad lecturing. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Five factors. So, 
so we weren't sure what we were going to find because, as I said, no one had looked at the readiness or facilitators to doing the work. And the first one surprised us a little bit because it was people, um, doctors and nurses and midwives and other health professionals having a commitment to the area. And that commitment was from values like um, human rights, child rights, feminists, but also uh, because some of them had their own personal experience and we've done some work on that and shown that that's quite common in health professionals. So this idea of commitment um, is was very strong. The next was if they actually had a go at doing what we call an advocacy approach, so working with the woman uh, in a very empathic ally-type way, so listening and validating, and they found that, um, they got good feedback on that from the survivors. Mm. Then they went, oh, I can do this. You know, it's not as hard as I thought it was. But they yeah. were the first two. Yeah, yeah, you know, neither of them surprised me. I guess from a medical model, you know, the way we learn things, especially, you know, is the old um, watch one, do one, teach one. So I love yeah. that advocacy, you know, because I agree. When I look back at my own experience... It was nervousness about not knowing what to ask, how to ask it, how not to put my foot in it, and then not having done it. So I love that this model is sort of bringing into processes that we're so used to in the health system. You know, you have to actually do it before you have a sense. Anyway, I don't want to hold you up too much. So one, two... No, no, that's that's fine, because what the WHO tells us to do is listen and inquire about their needs and validate their experience. Any of us can do that. You know, even if we're not health professionals. And there's a little bit more around safety and offering support. But really, it, it, it isn't as complex as it has to be. So we've got CNA, yep. and then the T is actually trusting that the relationship between the health professional and the patient is, the, is a good place. We hear a lot about police and justice, and there's totally a place for that. But actually, health professionals are the highest group told. So if the health professional held a belief that health is a good place for this work to be happening, of course, they were more likely to say they'd do the work. So that, that, that's, that's really the T, is trusting um, the relationship. Yep. And the C, the catch, is, is collaborating in a team. So do I have someone who's got my back? And that's harder in general practice. I'm a, I'm a GP. You know, it's harder to have that team. Usually it's the other GP, but in a hospital system it would be, you know, the um, social workers or it would be uh, some of the mental health workers. So, and, and, of course, the specialist workers. So the fact that you're committed, that you've had a go at it, advocacy, you trust that it's the right place to do it and that you actually have a team behind you. Now, you can't do it unless you've got high health system support and that's the final bit and that means that you've got a private place to ask that your manager isn't uh annoyed with you for doing this work you know they're very supportive that there's support for you if you become distressed in any way when you do the work now if there's low health system support then even if you all those other things it, you can't do the work you, you definitely need the systems in place the referral pathways, the protocols, the champions to talk to, the time, etc., to to do the work. So, so that's the model in a in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm just going to throw to panel beater because I know he's got some questions, and then I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit about how you're going to train people around that. Okay. My uh, my question's related to training in a sense. Um, 
you've your research, reading your article, your research identified the gap, the knowledge gap, and the training gap. And to an outsider, that comes as a little bit of a surprise. But uh, I guess that just re-emphasises how important your work is. What is the current state of um, addressing DVA in uh, medical training curriculum at the moment? And my impression that I'm taking away from where we're at at the moment is that DVA is a pretty much a professional development add-on during the career rather than something that's occurring um, through the, tr- the initial training. Is that the case? You're spot on. So 10 years ago, we did a survey of all medical schools and asked where, when and where they were training. And on average, it was two hours um, in the whole course. So Goodness. something that the leading contributor to disability and death for women of childbearing age. Uh, you know, when I asked the med students when I trained them, how much have you had on asthma, you know, yeah. in, or diabetes in comparison. So, and we've recently redone that survey, and I'm not going to give it away totally because we're going to publish that soon, but it hasn't improved greatly. And and just, uh, I guess in a follow-up, because I know um, uh, Doolittle's itching to get uh, another question in, but I'm going to be sneaky. Um, I'm wondering, this uh, necessarily so, this, this research focuses on um, self-identification by medical practitioners and their needs and where they see um, what, what needs to be in place. I wonder um, if you can preempt any correlation between what the those who are experiencing domestic violence are saying what their needs are from health practitioners. Yeah, so we've also done one uh, a qualitative um, metasynthesis, which is collecting all those voices, and um, we've submitted that for publication, so I, I won't talk exactly about that. But we do know from the work that the World Health Organisation does that it, it's exactly what I said before. It's listen, inquire about needs, validate or name their experience, um, try and work with them about a safety discussion and offer ongoing support and really asking when you see indicators, you know, any yeah. chronic mental health symptoms or chronic physical symptoms. And in this time of COVID, if you think someone's hovering on the telephone while you're speaking to them, you know, other indicators of control um, are ones uh, that really make you feel like you want to ask. So it is simple things that um, survivors say they want and they don't want you to fix the problem. Um, many, many practitioners want to leap in and fix the problem. But, we, you know, it's a chronic problem and they're the best judge the survivors of which way to go. I guess one of the big challenges is that they don't um, usually go to a consultation with a health practitioner and expose their experience in the first instance. It's often multiple visits before it comes to the surface. And they need to be asked. You know, in an empathic way, are you afraid of your partner? Uh, you know, are, are things happening in your relationship um, that sometimes uh, make you feel scared? You know, those sorts of gentle questions. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So, following on for that, what do you see the next? What's your goal in terms of getting hospitals to take that next step? Because I, I totally. Um, what you were saying, I've seen many, many, many times. I know I don't. I would be surprised if I had two hours in my training thirty years ago as a doctor. <laughs> yeah. I really would. I, I don't think I was aware of aware that it was really a health issue. To be honest, and I know this is yeah. embarrassing, but I don't think I was aware that it was a health issue. Something that I should be paying attention to beyond asthma and stuff like that. Probably until at least ten years into my career, and then, and that was only through every once in a while there'd be a big. We think there's been someone who's you know experiencing family violence. What should we do? And every Everyone would scratch their heads. I think there's a lot less head scratching these days, but I really relate to that number four, the 
collaborating because every time I hear about it in the hospital, there's lots of support required, in, especially from the social workers. So how do you see sort of, you know, getting to that next stage where there's absolutely no head scratching and everyone's au fait with what to do and, and we've got a system that you'd consider to be good? Yes, well, certainly the strengthening hospital response to family violence, which um, you know about, is, is is has been moving towards that. And I think I think twenty or thirty percent of the um, health practitioners have been trained in um, in the hospitals. But of course, I don't think the training necessarily addresses or works on people's values. Now, you know, the commitment part. I, I think that it does, but it it doesn't bring it to the fore. And I think that that's the first step is actually taking people back to their principles and saying, you know, you got into whatever you got into because you wanted to help people. Um, and so you're missing this very important social issue. Like people know if someone's poor or if someone's, um, you know, uh, really struggling after bereavement or something. You know, they know that that's a social thing that's happened in people's lives that affects their health. But it's spot on what you're saying, that um, the third part, the, the, the second C, the commitment and the... and Not the second C, sorry, trusting the relationship, trusting that health is a good place to do it. I think we don't do enough of that. Mm, you know, I, I really don't think... Yeah, I think a lot of health practitioners are still pretty scared about um, yeah. about uh, entering into this conversation. Yeah. And, and so I think that's very real. I also think the values thing's important. I don't, I'm not 100% sure we're on the same wavelength there. Do you mean that some people, deva- do some people in the health system still have fairly old views and devalue the role of family violence in health or don't think it's part of healthcare? Yeah, oh, for sure. Like, uh, I think health pr- practitioners reflect community attitudes. So, you know, there, there would be a, a lot of the community who think that women make it up, you know. <laughs> so there would be health professionals who think that they make it up. So, you know, there is that aspect of it, and I think we deal a bit with that. But I think it's appealing to their innate core values of human rights, of child rights, um, for some people women's rights. And, and saying this is a this is a rights issue that that no one should be treated this way, and I think we don't do as many exercises around that as we could, but totally we do exercise around attitudes towards um, uh, gender and uh, women because that's a common underlying uh, aspect. Do you think? Um, there's, I, I, I suspect in my mind there's a cohort effect meaning older people have values that reflect their time and you know as I was saying before I grew up in an era where I didn't realize this was a health issue as a medical student so do you do you feel faith that the younger medical students the younger generation of clinicians coming through will gradually improve attitudes within the um, health community around gender bias and family violence recognizing these problems is there a sense that the younger people are better at this Yes, look, I think they get taught more communication skills for yeah, a start. Mm. And and what I was talking about with listen, inquire about needs and validate is basic good communication skills. And I think, you know, if I think about my family medicine program training, which was a long time ago, you know, that's when it started, the college, you know, training program now for GPs. That's been doing communication skills for a very long time. But I think, um, so that's one good point. The, the second, I think, is, is that I think, the media, you know, the Rosie Batty effect 
yeah. has affected, you know, this younger generation. And so I think those two things combined has put it on people's radars, at least. Like the medical students I did yesterday, they, every year they run a student conference and every year they ask for domestic violence because they're not taught it. They ask for refugee health. They ask for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. These are things that are not in all the courses. So I think that, that we need to take a good look at our, our um, curriculum um, and change it. Oh, very wise words indeed. Can Before we let you go, can I just ask you, you what's been the impact of the pandemic on your work and uh, you know, how it's affected you as a, an academic clinician? So I think that, um, as I said before, telehealth can make it a little bit difficult. You can't see people's body language um, in terms of clinical work. But you can also hear their voice. You can check whether, you know, they're hovering in the background, whether they can never take your calls. In terms of research, I mean, there's been a bit of a flurry of research about trying to work out what this has, you know, effect on it. And we're about to launch a survey to try and reach out to as many survivors as possible to ask them what has been the change. What has it been like, um, you know, over the last few months? And I'll be able to speak more about it then. So I, th I think, though, that um, the final word would be that, you know, for Aboriginal controlled health services, they've had to really minimise their face-to-face -face work. And um, I really think that that's um, a population that, that are, uh, you know, at risk of family violence and at risk at, uh, of um, from COVID. So... Things like that really make me concerned during this time. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of worrying, isn't it? Because it's one of those things where we're probably not going to find a little bit out until a bit down the track, and you know, there's That's this right. sense that we could be missing something really important. Um, Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us this morning on your Sunday morning and filling us in on your latest research. Um, it's been fantastic hearing that uh, that works that the work that you're doing that's going on and that the evolution of this problem is um, we're getting there in the hospitals, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, have we got uh, Cyber Sue on the on the blower? Here I am. <gasps> Cyber Sue, it's nice to hear your voice. How are you? I'm fabulous Professor Doolittle. Am I Professor today? You are. You're oh. officially Professor Doolittle. Thank you. Thank you for the promotion. <laughs> that is nice. Doesn't have as good a ring as Dr. Doolittle. Hey, uh, you have sent us this beautiful little doll. I wish I could show it to the listeners. In fact, I should take a photo and put it on uh, our Instagram or our Facebook, which you can always find us on, by the way. It's a beautiful diagram that has everything you would ever want to know about drug use and COVID. Um, it's my mind map. It shows the chaos of my mind. It is a mind map. Yeah, that, I should have described that to people. I actually use a mind map program on, on my computer that tries to simplify all this, and it is fantastic. So why don't you launch us into it? Why did this catch your attention first up? What, what made you choose this issue for today? Well, it's funny, Professor Doolittle, because, you know, there's all this... I'm very surprised there's this whole panic buying going on of toilet paper. Um, what's this all about? Everyone's kind of back, you know, there's these 30 cases come back a day and everyone's buying toilet paper. And it got me thinking about... Um, another kind of uh, potential panic buying in the area of drugs and illicit drugs. And I wondered whether that was actually something that was going on and if there were any potential risks associated with that. You know, we've got the um, 
candidates for um, you know the whole extra drug use, like boredom, anxiety, being stuck at home, loneliness, etc. And um, so I thought I'd take a little look into that. So, what were the first things that caught your attention? Well, um, there was a little study that was, that's been done by the University of Melbourne, and it was a small study um, of people engaged through social media. So they were probably typically recre- recreational drug users, um, you know, going out on the weekend and so on. And they wanted to find out whether their drug use was um, any, there was any changes to their drug use during this COVID time. And, um, you know, traditionally, um, experts globally, they do say that there's expected significant shifts in the way that drugs are used. For example, um, switching to different drugs because there's a lack of access um, without, you know, travel restrictions and so on. Or is there a risk of bulk buying like toilet paper and also changes to the market like the price or the purity of the drugs or simply the availability. And in this little study um, that the university did, they found that interestingly there was more cannabis use and there was more alcohol use. And you can kind of understand that because people are more at home and there's a more drug that are used at home. Um, but for other drugs, they were finding that the use was about the same or a little bit less um, because people aren't going out, I guess, and they're not going out to clubs and they're not taking so much rave drugs and so on. Um, but... What was happening potentially is that people are still accessing their drugs face-to-face and they are doing a little bit more office bulk buying, so buying buying, buying more than they normally would. Um, and I guess that there's a potential risk around that with overdosing or with, um, for example, stocking up. And then when people are free, when we're out of these restrictions and we go out again, um, are people going to then um, not be used to taking drugs and overdose as well? Or are they using drugs that they're not used to using um, and struggling with getting the dosing right there? Panel beta, so, I was going to throw to you at this point, my friend. Yeah, go. Yeah, um, so there's... I think we should probably separate out um, alcohol and um, illicit drugs, right, for our purposes, mm. or should we? I mean, mm. I, I, what I'm hearing from you is that there's some important distinctions to be made. Obviously, there's the legality mm. issue, and that's not COVID-related. But within mm. COVID, distinctions between about access seems to be part of the story that you're pointing us to. And um, I know my little local booze uh, bottle shop, has normally got one person in there, um, me, and um, when I go there now, it's there's always other people there. So just in that N mm. equals one anecdote, people are definitely accessing alcohol, no problems, and it was treated as an essential service, wasn't it? What do you understand yeah. the distinction, therefore, to be made between illicit and um, alcohol? I think that's a really good point. And there's a study by the, um, I think the FARE, which is the... Um, uh, it's a study that goes into alcohol alcohol research, essentially, and they they have found that 70% of Australians are drinking more alcohol. Um, so there's a 20% increase in alcohol buying, so you're right, there's a lot more. I guess the difference is that it is a known, it's a known, it's known, the drug. Um, and in this illicit drug access um, is that the purity can change, the ingredients can change, the access can change. And so that's where the dangers might come up. And it's it, it's um, it's happened and it's been recognised in past crises as well, like economic crises or environmental crises, that these... Um, it can actually become more dangerous. Like we can think, oh, there's a decrease in drug use. And so it's can only be a good thing but in fact there's um i think there's a need to look into this little study was for inner city 
drug users. There needs to be a study into people who are more at vulnerable at in programs injecting, who've already got lower health literacy or uh, more stigma, or they're more socially vulnerable. And so, what's the impact on them? Cyber Sue, what do you reckon from the clinical perspective, people like me in the hospital system and you in the hospital system, how should mm. we use this information? What should we be looking out for? I, I, I mean, for example, in this study that was, um, in other studies that have been shown that people are switching to drugs, like, for example, replacing heroin with uh, using fentanyl, for example, which is a, a synthetic opioid, but it can be more risky to them. So um, that's a question for a for a Professor Doolittle, really, is are we looking out for um, give, reducing the stigma and allowing people the opportunity to talk about what's bothering them and uh, what, what are their what are they doing? And I guess reducing stigma so they can talk about it. Um, yeah. I have to throw that one back at you, Doolittle. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just jump on the back of uh, your question to Doolittle as well, Cyber Sue. I, 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 one of the ways that I'm processing this um, is trying to, again, look for the distinctions and the compares and contrasts that are possible. There's the distinction we made between using drugs, right, during a time of COVID, and the way that we might think about that and that takes us in a particular direction then there's our considerations of addiction i guess where this is where the psychiatry might come in do little um addiction doesn't occur immediately as you start using addiction occurs over a period of time of use um we don't know when um you know covid as we are currently experiencing is going to end but we do know it's not going to be tomorrow so in a sense it's the length of covid that is going to tell us a lot about addiction um and then well, I'll just pause there. I've got a follow-up, though. Um, where's the psychiatry in this, uh, Doolittle? Yeah, I think the, the points that CyberSue made are very good. Firstly, we've got to be aware of unusual situations for a start, that people might, once they start getting back into the open and starting to use the more social party drugs, um, because they'll have had periods where they haven't been using them, they'll have all those things like down-regulated receptors and whatnot, that they'll be at high... And they'll have withdrawn, basically, completely. They'll be at high risk of overdose. So the problem is you might be, a, you know, a, a relatively regular user and you're used to... Let me just put it in, say, alcohol terms. Say you're used to a drug equivalent of five drinks a day for the last couple of years and now you've gone down to one or two drinks a day and then things reopen and you think you can go straight back to five drinks a day but now your body's not used to it so you overdose. So we're going to have to watch out for that. In terms of the psychology, the psychology, it doesn't surprise me that marijuana and alcohol have been the more popular ones. Um, marijuana is very much a, a drug for isolation. It's not a drug that people tend to take in party situations when they're socialising. It tends to be a drug people take to chill out by themselves. So that one's a bit of a... That's not surprising that's gone up. Alcohol is a very social drug in Australia. However, alcohol's also used to deal with anxiety. Alcohol is the number one self-medication for anxiety in our community, and about a third of people who have an alcohol problem began that alcohol problem with an anxiety disorder. So I guess the increased alcohol is related to the anxiety of the COVID situation. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that to our attention because I... My sense is that um, a lot of the alcohol consumption during COVID is simple, simply people not needing the daily commute. So instead of maybe getting home and opening a bottle of wine over, as they make dinner, for example, maybe about 7.30, something like that, um, they're now, I haven't left home all day, 
now the bottle is getting opened at five o'clock, which suddenly means it's you know possible to maybe sneak in two before dinner and and the, two before bedtime, and and that starts to happen. But the anxiety, um, Doolittle, I think there's the rub for me. We've got the recession coming up. Well, we're going to start to the recession's in play right now, but the recession's coming up. Unemployment, insecurity, all of those things. I'm I'm sure we we could return to domestic violence on this during the recession as well. Mm. Um, where do you see the anxiety and, and the connection there with the psychology you're referring to? Is that a cyber sue or a doolittler? Whoever feels um, cyber sue, you most... have to go first. Go doolittle. Oh me. <laughs> okay. I'm um, sorry, listeners. We're all in three different spots, so um, we're passing over to each other with voice rather than our usual eye signals and fingers. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I think, I, I think that point you just made a second ago is incredibly real. And I'm going to do this on an N equals one, the point about the practicalities and the social situation of it. I know I'm drinking a little bit more at the moment because I'm not driving very much. So um, if I'm with friends, we, it tends to be local or we tend to walk because you know, there's not big organised things. So just things like driving and the fact that you're home all day, you open that first drink earlier. Also on the N equals one, I've, a lot of people I've... A lot of my mates are, you know, using a bit more. Those who use marijuana are using a little bit more because they've got more time on their hands. I think it'll be an interesting one to tease out, and I don't think we'll know till after the event. But I, I genuinely believe I've, this is one of the most anxious times I've seen in our community mm. um, at every level, and I'm be incredibly surprised if that doesn't drive increased amounts of alcohol use, which will drive increased addiction. Um, it's just, it, especially given that people are at home and they're falling back to things that they know, which is, you know, as I say, the number one self-medication, alcohol. They're not getting as easy access to clinicians, so I think we'll have increased rates for sure. Any final comments from either of you before we say our thank yous and goodbye and pass on to Einstein? Just really quickly, um, Cyber Sue, with the telehealth angle, um, can you confirm or deny stories that were going around how Alcohol Anonymous um, uh, meetings were being sabotaged online? Oh, I... Don't, I, I can't. I don't know about that one. Sorry. Yeah, I, I got wind. Uh, yeah. Did you get yeah. that? So, I, I haven't even yeah. heard of it. What is yeah. it? So, yeah. alcohol, obviously, uh, during um, isolation, Alcohol Anonymous uh, meetings were being held online in Zoom and so on and so forth, and they were getting trolled. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Oh, boy. And, well, you know, that's the story I heard. I, I, I didn't go into detail, so I'd, I'd, I'd leave people to seek out more information. But um, if that's the case, it's really concerning, and it does represent one of the challenges for telehealth, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, and I know a lot of work has been done in the last, um, like in the last probably six or so weeks, the common so telehealth platform. Because I've only got seconds Oh, yeah, sure. The, 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 I know that they have been working a lot to reduce their, um, to, to increase their safety, and they've recognised this mass use for much more uh, house-related reasons and the security's improved. But, hey, yeah, we're going to have to end up CyberSue. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I thought you were going to give another mm. sentence there. I should have waited one no. more millisecond. CyberSue, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us, and sorry to um, whiz you quickly through at the end there. I'm good. <laughs> Great. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.